Few horror films in the history of the world have had such an impact in terms of pop culture and sheer terror on audiences than that of 1973's The Exorcist. If you're a fan of horror films, then you've surely seen this movie. The Exorcist follows the story of a sweet, innocent 12-year-old girl who was mysteriously possessed by an entity. Is The Exorcist a creation of the mind to entertain and scare, or is it something worse? A nightmare of reality. Something based on true events. One thing we know for certain is that it's a wonderful day for an exorcism. You're gonna die up there. Keep away! The sour's mine! Fuck me! Fuck me! Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Smart with No Common Sense. I'm your host, Blake Barnes. Here we are, episode three. Nightmares of Reality, The Exorcist Part 2. If you haven't already listened to Part 1, I suggest you go back and listen to that before you listen to this one, because you're going to be fucking lost if you don't. Um, in Part 1, we listened to, we talked a little bit about the movie itself, and then some of the spooky shit that happened around the production. You know, some people getting injured, people dying, mysterious fire, all kinds of cool stuff. And then we really dived into the story of Robbie, the young boy who was supposedly possessed that inspired William Peter Blatty to write his original novel and then subsequently the screenplay as well. And that turned into the horror movie we all love. You know, man, we never look at pea soup the same again. So, eh, enough fucking around. I've talked enough, so we're going to go straight into it. Uh, we last left off with the Mannheim family beginning to discuss temporarily moving to St. Louis to see if it would help with Robbie's situation. Um, and before I go any further, just want to remind everybody that our source for pretty much all of today's episode is Possessed by Thomas B. Allen. He is also, this is the main source that we're getting all of our information from, so to us, his word is God. Not really, but you know what I mean. Robbie's parents were still discussing the plan about St. Louis when something happened that convinced them to go. One night, while Robbie was getting ready for bed, he looked in the bathroom mirror and screamed. His mother rushed into the bathroom, Robbie's pajama top hung open. He was trembling. Scrawled across his thin chest were scratches that spelled out in blood a single word, Louis. Or Louis, if you are French, ha ha. Phyllis Mannheim tried to be calm. She took Robbie in her arms, felt his pounding heart next to hers. She led him into the, his bedroom, We'll go to St. Louis, she told him. We'll go to St. Louis. She began speaking rapidly, telling him she would start working on it right away, but it would take time. Carl Mannheim had to arrange time off from work. There were relatives to call, train tickets to buy. Robbie doubled up in pain and let out a moan. He pulled down his pajama pants. On his hip, his mother saw blood ooze through his skin. It was as if scratches were emerging from him, as if something were clawing at him from the inside. The glistening scratches formed a word. Saturday. Phyllis Mannheim was too stunned since that Robbie's body was acting like a Ouija board. She asked, How long? As he screamed and grimaced again, she realized to her horror that her question would cause him pain, forcing forth another word in blood. Now on his chest it came, scratches that she read as meaning they would stay there three and a half weeks. Schultz later said that he and his own physician saw no words but did see nerve reaction rashes that had the appearance of scratches. When later asked to recall what was said by the family at that time, Schultz wrote, Now he has visions of the devil, 
and goes into a trance and speaks in a strange language, they tell me. I am insisting that the family return here to their home and put the boy into a hospital under the care of a physician who is sympathetic to his cause. My physician is sympathetic. Theirs went to the mental hygiene clinic after insistence and persisted in trying to treat the boy with barbitol. Barbitol, for those who didn't know, like me, is a barbiturate which used primarily to sedate people. Robbie's mother disregarded Schultz's advice and insisted that she felt compelled to obey the messages. On Saturday, March 5th, Robbie, Phyllis, and Carl went to Union Station in Washington and boarded the overnight train for St. Louis, Missouri. Religion divided the Mannheim's family in St. Louis. Some of their family were Catholic and some were Lutheran. Both sides of the family offered to help Robbie, however. After the disastrous experience with the Catholic Father Hughes, the family decided to turn to a Lutheran minister and a new form of Ouija board. I'm sure nothing will go wrong. On Monday, March 7th, at the home of Lutheran relatives, they gathered around a kitchen table and wrote the alphabet on a piece of paper with one holding a pencil over it. They then sat in silence, seeking an alphabet medium. The table would move, and the pencil would underline a letter, and someone else would write it down. This process continued until they received a message. The message they received was from Aunt Harriet. She was the spirit causing the phenomena, and not the devil. The relatives went into the next room asking for a sign, and a heavy bed moved about three feet while no one was near it. Suddenly, Robbie, who had been off in the corner reading a comic book, screamed and doubled over in pain. There was fresh blood and scratches, but there was no account of what this message said. I'm partial to believe that it probably said something like Wu-Tang forever, but who knows. That night, there were the usual bed shaking and scratching noises. On Tuesday, March 8th, the Mannheims went to stay with their Catholic side of the family, Carl's brother George and his wife Catherine. They had two boys, Billy, who was younger than Robbie, and Marty, who was about the same age. The daughter, Elizabeth, attended, attended St. Louis University, which was a Jesuit institution. Robbie seemed well enough and played with his cousin Marty all day. Phyllis began to worry about Robbie not being in school, so he called Robbie over and told him that she was going to enroll him in Marty's school for the time being. Robbie looked at his mother coldly and grimaced for a second, then pulled up his shirt to reveal scratches that said, no school. Anytime Phyllis would mention school, scratches appeared on Robbie's arms and legs saying no or in. Phyllis was worried about her son and this power within him. That night, Robbie and Marty slept in the same bedroom. Once everyone settled down, familiar sounds started coming from the bedroom and the parents rushed in to see the mattresses flopping up and down furiously and the scratching sounds seeming to come from everywhere. George and Catherine were terrified. Elizabeth, after being told what happened, suggested that she talk to one of her Jesuit teachers at St. Louis University. Carl and Phyllis agreed. Enter Elizabeth's favorite teacher, Father Raymond J. Bishop, the 43-year-old head of the Department of Education. Upon seeing the concern on Elizabeth's face, Bishop immediately juggled his schedule in order to speak with her. Elizabeth told him about her young cousin from out of town and about what had happened in the two houses in St. Louis, the moving furniture, scratches on Robbie's body, and the feeling of menace. Bishop would later say that he had sensed from the beginning that Robbie was threatened with possession, but he did not share this with Elizabeth. Bishop then sought out the advice from additional priests, with him ending up talking to Father Paul Reinert, president of St. Louis University. I won't go into all the details surrounding the discussions as it deals with a lot of should we help, should we not help, are we going to go against the church by not helping, are we going to go against the church by helping in this way. Essentially, it was decided that due to Elizabeth's appeal for help, the Jesuit community decided that Jesuits were duty-bound to solve the problem. Bishop did not record what Reinert said to him, but he surely advised him not to go into anything blindly. More than likely, he told him to go to the house, give it a priestly blessing, and see for yourself what's going on. Then we'll decide what to do next. 
After talking with Reinert, Bishop called Elizabeth and told her he would like to see Robbie as soon as possible. The evening of Wednesday, March 9th, a member of the family picked Bishop up at the university and took him home. After introductions between the families and Bishop, the Mannheims warmed up to him and went over to what had been happening to them and to their son since January 15th. Bishop questioned them gently, probing for inconsistencies in their stories, along with getting details from himself. He kept the interview unemotional and non-religious. They told Bishop all the details, except were weird about the details with Father Hughes. They told Bishop that Hughes hadn't met Robbie in person, and they also said that they understood that Hughes had taken steps toward performing an exorcism but had not done so. More than likely, they didn't want to tell Bishop about the slashing incident at Georgetown Hospital. Bishop never found out about this detail. Next, Bishop met Robbie, but saw a normal boy and not someone as his parents had described him. The Mannheims had scant knowledge of possession, but what they were saying was disturbing Bishop. However, he tried not to let it show. Bishop then went from room to room, blessing each one softly by murmuring prayers in Latin and making the sign of the cross with his upraised right hand. Bishop also brought holy water with him and blessed in the name of Saint Ignatius, who is said to have performed an exorcism by sprinkling it in the rooms. Bishop gave a special blessing over the bed that Robbie was using. The priestly blessing that Reinhardt had advised was a low-level exorcism against infestation, or the mildest form of diabolical activity that we discussed in the previous episode. The phenomena that the Mannheims had reported to Bishop, scratchings in the wall and floor, noises, flying objects, may have indicated that demons were stalking sites around Robbie. Such diabolical presence, according to long-held belief, could be countered by a mild form of exorcism, the exorcism of a place. Bishop would have known that by now it no longer seemed to matter where Robbie was. He was plagued wherever he went. Chances were that the case, as Bishop later called it, already had progressed from infestation to the next stage, obsession. In that stage, according to a theological definition published in 1906, the demon never makes him the victim, lose consciousness, but nevertheless torments him in such a manner that his, the demon's, action is manifest. The scratchings and thumpings in Robbie's home in Maryland were the signs of infestation. The scratchings on Robbie's body, which Bishop had not yet seen, indicated obsession. What had not yet appeared were the indications of the third stage, actual possession. This is when a demon makes the victim lose consciousness and then seems to play in his body the part of the soul. He uses his eyes to see with, his ears to listen with, and his mouth to speak with. When it was time for Robbie to go to bed, the boy went upstairs, and then a few minutes later, Bishop went into his room and bid him goodnight. Bishop then went back downstairs to say a few more things to Robbie's parents. Suddenly, they all heard something and stopped to listen. There were thumpings and bangings, and then Robbie screamed, and they all rushed to him. When they got upstairs, they saw Robbie's mattress moving back and forth. Bishop later reported the boy lay perfectly still and did not exert any physical effort. Bishop sprinkled holy water on the bed in the form of the cross, and the movement stopped, but then started again when he stepped out of the room. Then Robbie cried out and a sharp pain seemed to have struck him on his stomach. They lifted his pajama top to show zigzag scratches and bold red lines on the boy's abdomen. And during the 15 minutes, the boy was not out of the view of six observers. At 15 minutes after 11, the mattress stopped shaking and Robbie went to sleep. The next day, Thursday, March 10th, Father Bishop began talking to a close friend, Father William S. Bowdern. Bowdern was a 52-year-old native of St. Louis. His life is an interesting one that I recommend you check out for yourselves. However, it is good to note that Bishop went to Bowdern for his knowledge and experience that he would also bring to the case. Bowdern was both a pastor and a former army chaplain. He also smoked camel cigarettes incessantly. Essentially, 
He was a badass in the Jesuit community and everyone respected him. That night, after an uneventful day, Robbie was in bed and the mattress started shaking again, along with the scratchings and the sound of something marching toward Robbie's bed. Friday, March 11th, Elizabeth told Bishop what had happened the night before, and a car was arranged to pick up Bishop and Bowder that night at about 10pm. When the two priests arrived, Bishop introduced Bowder to Robbie's parents and then to Robbie, where they talked until about 11pm when Robbie went upstairs and then went to go to bed. A few minutes later, he yelled for help. Everyone dashed up to Robbie's room to find him sitting up in bed with his face pale. Robbie said that he'd felt some kind of force in the room. He held up his forearm and it had two scratches in the form of a cross. Bowdern pinned a crucifix reliquary under Robbie's pillow and everyone went back downstairs. This is when Bishop began collecting facts for the journal he would soon be starting on the case. Bishop and Bowdern started interviewing the family to make up the dossier on them. After the interview was done, the priests were about to leave. There was a loud crashing sound that came from upstairs. Again, Everyone ran upstairs and gathered in Robbie's room. Robbie said he had been dozing off when a bottle of holy water, left by Father Bishop on Wednesday, flew from a table about two feet from Robbie's bed and landed six feet away in the corner of the room. Although it hit the floor hard, the glass bottle didn't break. Father Bowdern, without a word, took his rosary out of his pocket and placed it around Robbie's neck. He stood on one side of the bed and Bishop on the other and began to recite the rosary. As the prayers went on, Bowdern also told Robbie a story about Our Lady of Fatima. The words and prayers seemed to calm Robbie, and about 12.30, the priests were driven back to campus. About five minutes after Elizabeth's father left with the priests, Elizabeth, her mother, and Robbie's parents heard a scraping noise in Robbie's room. They went upstairs and found their way into Robbie's room blocked by a heavy bookcase. The bookcase had previously been on the other side of the bed. Robbie lay in the bed looking confused and frightened. A stool that was in front of the dressing table now stood near the bottom of the bed overturned. Phyllis and the others pushed their way into Robbie's room and put the furniture back. Then everyone but Phyllis left the room. She decided to stay on the bed with Robbie. Phyllis later said she sensed a force enter the room. The stool once again fell over and then Robbie felt something under his pillow. Then came the scratching and the shaking of the mattress, gentle at first, and then more and more violent. The scratching became louder and louder at a high and higher pitch, the mattress shaking in a frenzied rhythm. All this made Phyllis think of Aunt Harriet. Phyllis took Robbie out of the room and seemed to be on the verge of hysteria when she started talking to the others. Phyllis started from the beginning and said that somehow Harriet, not an unknown demon, was doing this to us. Harriet is at the bottom of this. We have to contact her. It's about the money. Don't you see? The mattress. The scratching. Listen. Don't you see? Look at the time just before three. She knew she was going to die, and she came back to tell us something, and she's trying to reach us at the exact same time of the morning she died. The only account of what happens next comes from Father Bishop's diary. The details were given to him in fragments as he interviewed each of the adults on what happened. Bishop detaches himself in these parts of the diary and keeps the focus on Robbie and what was happening to him. He had only one mission, the rescue of Robbie from whatever it is that was stalking him. The five people in the home then decided to ask questions of the spirit. Bishop wrote. Imagine that group gathered in the bedroom. On one side of the bed where Rosary had been said only hours before stood Carl Mannheim's brother George, married to a Catherine, a Catholic. Next to them stood Elizabeth, the college student, wan and bewildered by what had come to her home, by what role she had played in bringing in a priest. Here she was, standing in her brother Marty's room, watching the mattress shake, hearing the scratching begin. Marty had been drawn into this, this 
whatever it was, on the first night. Now he was in another room, sleeping peacefully, she hoped. She was taking this all in. In a few hours, she would be seeking out Father Bishop to tell him what had happened after he and Father Bowdern left. On the other side of the bed stood Phyllis and Carl Mannheim, part of the Lutheran branch. They had known Harriet the spiritualist, the Ouija board believer. Now alongside this quaking bed, they were going to turn to Harriet again. The questions asked in the tempest of the bedroom focused on money that Aunt Harriet had hidden in a metal box short, shortly before she died. Bishop's account does not name the questioners, but it seems extremely likely that the questions were asked by Phyllis and by Carl Mannheim trying to reach his dead sister. The interview with Aunt Harriet consisted of a shouting question such as, Where is the money? In response, the bed shook and thumped. Someone would shout, Harriet, stop! The shaking would mo stop momentarily, as though Harriet were listening for a question. Then the question would be repeated or elaborated on, is it in this house? And the bed would shake. Then someone, most likely Phyllis, would interpret the shakes. She says no. The bed would stop shaking if Harriet agreed with the interpretation or continued shaking if Harriet disagreed. Through this bizarre dialogue, Phyllis believed she and Carl were able to learn that Aunt Harriet had hidden a map in the attic of her home, and only Carl would be able to find it. This map would lead him to the metal box containing the money, but the money was destined for Harriet's daughter, Alice. Did Carl slip off, find the map, and then the money? Only the family knows, and no one in the family then or now wanted to talk about Aunt Harriet's hidden legacy. Probate court records indicate that she did not leave a will, so there is no public record to show whether she even had an estate to leave. To Robbie in his case, the question of Aunt Harriet's metal box and whether or not it was found is important only because it shows she was continually involved in his life after her death. For Robbie and his parents, she became a stubborn, possibly benevolent memory that somehow came forth as a thumping, scratching presence. The reasonable mind wants to see the thumping and the scratchings as hallucinations, but to Robbie and his family, what they saw and heard was real. They believed their senses, though they did not understand the motive for what they experienced. Was Aunt Harriet causing this? Was she a restless spirit from the afterlife? Did that make her a manifestation of evil? Did something happen between her and Robbie? Something so darkly secret that it now haunted him? That was a... Excerpt from the book Possessed by Thomas Allen. I recommend you read it. That was him piecing together basically all the little fragments from uh, Father Bishop's diary into like a cohesive uh, narrative for us. Also, uh, anyone else wondering what the hell money they're talking about? Uh, seems like that kind of comes out of the blue for this family. Some sort of conspiracy that they're using their son to cover up. Interesting to think about. Not sure. Anyways, Elizabeth then told Bishop about what had happened after the priest had left. The two priests then began discussing the case. Both men knew that diabolical possession was a possibility that they had to face. Bishop's report at this point makes it seem that they knew little, if anything, about the abortive exorcism attempted by Father Hughes in February. To them, the case was new, and so they began to research and study rigorously before they could even attempt to ask the Archbishop for permission to perform an exorcism. Just as Hughes had turned to the Roman ritual in February, Bowdern and Bishop did the same now. They talked and discussed, and finally came to the conclusion that they might be able to stop the evil before possession occurred. So Bishop and Bowdern decided to ask Archbishop Ritter to find and appoint an exorcist to perform the rite before a demon entered Robbie. Neither Father Bowdern nor Father Bishop wanted to be Robbie's exorcist. In their quick research between Saturday, March 11th and Tuesday, March 15th, they learned enough about exorcists to decide that neither of them was up for the task. One of the cases they studied was from the 17th century in France. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the Devils of Loudun or not, but in 1643, an entire 
convent in the small French village of Loudun was apparently possessed by the devil. Urban Grandier was a priest burned at the stake in Loudun, France on the 18th of August, 1634. He was accused of spiritually and sexually seducing an entire convent of Ursuline nuns and of being in league with the devil. Grandier was probably sexually promiscuous and too insolent of his peers. He had antagonized the mother superior, Sister Jean of the Angels, when he had rejected her offer to become the spiritual advisor to the convent. He faced the tribunal and was acquitted. It was only after he had publicly spoken against Cardinal Rechilelu that a new trial was ordered by the cardinal. He was tortured, found guilty, and executed by being burnt alive but never admitted guilt. In reality, this was probably more along the lines of either A, multiple personality disorder and mental illness issues that were not known of at the time, so everybody just thought everybody was possessed, or B, these nuns and priests were horny and fucked and then the nuns felt bad about it after and accused the priest of taking advantage of them. Either way, Grandier was murdered for it. However, <laughs> whenever you research this case, one of my favorite details from Loudun is that one of the nuns said she had seven devils inhabiting various parts of her body, and that the one in her belly had been successfully exercised with the aid of an enema of holy water. What a diabolical shit that must have been. Anyways, back to Robbie. So, Bishop and Bowdern struggled with this problem. Robbie was a boy in torment, but was Robbie just mentally ill? Were these signs enough that they'd seen? A young, a young American boy in need of an exorcism? How can that be? Exorcisms were of the old world, never in America. There is no record available on the correspondence and discussion between the Jesuit community and Archbishop Ritter over Robbie's case. What is known is that Bowdern got the permission of his superior to write a letter to Ritter asking that an exorcism be authorized and an exorcist be chosen. Bowdern decided he was not qualified to be an exorcist especially since he did not feel that he was a holy man. In anticipation of getting approval to perform the exorcism, Bowdern asked two priests who politely turned him down. Bishop doesn't mention the recruitment attempt in his journal, but one Jesuit remembered, the ones who refused said they didn't have the strength. It was not a case of skepticism, they just didn't feel capable. While Bowdern and Bishop were planning the presentation of the case, they stayed away from Robbie's home. Robbie's parents informed them that the mattress shaking, scratching sounds, and furniture movement continued on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Archbishop Ritter was a no-nonsense man who did not like passing the buck. When he replaced the former Archbishop, Ritter had been compared to Harry Truman, a Missourian who talked straight and said of his presidency, the buck stops here. Ritter ran his archdiocese the same way that Truman ran his White House. Ritter did not like what Bowdern had brought him. If Ritter did not believe in the existence of the devil, he could in theory reject the request and suggest that Robbie find his cure through psychiatry. But Archbishop Ritter, as a Catholic prelate, at least had to profess a belief in the existence of the devil. What he had to endorse in Robbie's case was another matter the presence of the devil. Ritter had no conclusive way to prove that Robbie was possessed or in an imminent danger of being possessed. The boy showed none of the traditional signs cited in the Roman ritual, so Ritter faced a dilemma. If Robbie were suffering from mental illness rather than diabolical possession, evil was not involved. An exorcism would do no good and even worse, his condition. But if this were diabolical possession, then evil, a terrible form of evil, was present and Ritter had to order a priest to risk his soul to save Robbie's. If evil was acknowledged, Ritter could not dismiss the petition. He was duty-bound to challenge the evil and struggle against it. However, he would fight as a general, the exorcist, would fight in the trenches. There is a basic theological hypothesis about evil. Don't go near it. On a catechism level, Catholic children are warned to stay away from occasions of sin. Adults receive sophisticated versions of the same advice. An exorcist has to touch evil, 
breathe it, focus on it. A priest perceives himself as living and working on the side of God. To work against the devil, an exorcist enters the deep, clutching shadow of evil. When he appears, the demons turn their evil on him. The exorcist priest, though he sees himself as an agent of good aided by an almighty God, simultaneously sees himself as a mere human being pitted against the powerful enemy with a long experience in perpetrating evil. If an exorcist wavered with doubt or fear when he ventured into the shadows of evil, he risked his own destruction and perhaps that of the person who had been called on to save. The unofficial but quietly promulgated reason given for Father Hughes' failed exorcism was that he had suffered a momentary lapse of concentration. Ritter may have known this through discreet inquiries to his fellow archbishop in Washington, or he may have sensed it through his own experience with young priests. If he did authorize an exorcism, he did not want one that ended with a physically or spiritually maimed priest. He wanted a successful exorcism, and he knew that success depended upon the priest he selected. Like Bowdern and Bishop, Ritter looked up what the Roman ritual said about qualities that an exorcist must have. A priest, when he intends to perform an exorcism over persons tormented by the devil, must be properly distinguished for his piety, prudence, and integrity of life. He should fulfill this devout undertaking in all constancy and humility, being utterly immune to any striving for human aggrandizement and relying not on his own, but on divine power. Moreover, he ought to be of mature years and revered not alone for his office, but for his moral qualities, piety, prudence, and integrity of life. Ritter knew many priests who could qualify and some who could not. Like Bowdern, Ritter had probably thought first of calling on a theologian. He could reach out to the faculty at any seminary whether run by Jesuits or by the archdiocese. He could select a priest in his own chancery. He could ask another bishop or archbishop to provide him with an exorcist. Instead, Ritter chose Father Bowdern. It has become Jesuit lore that when Ritter told Bowdern he was to be the exorcist, Bowdern said, nothing doing and the archbishop said you've got it all right everybody well um that's where we're gonna end it for part two the exorcist has been chosen father bowdern it's been decided and the shit is really about to hit the fan for everyone coming up in part three i'll be going over the exorcism in its entirety spoiler alert the exorcism lasts over a month hope you're all ready for the spitting pissing passing of wind through the rectum and a little boy talking about his beautiful pecker to grown men in the same room because that's what's coming up in part three so uh well hope you enjoyed another episode of smart with no common sense this has been the exorcist part two and we will see you here next time for part three bye-bye